0: There were more than 8,000 apparent opioid related deaths in Canada between January 2016 Over the last and March 2.5 2018. Years, on average, more than 11 people die from opioid related causes per, per day. There were 3,500 apparent opioid related deaths in 2016 and almost 1,000 additional in 2017. 3,996 in the first three months total. of 2018, there were at least 1,032 deaths. Between January and March 2018, deaths. 73% of accidental apparent opioid related deaths involved fentanyl or fentanyl analogs. The opioid epidemic is on track to kill an unprecedented number of Canadians in 2018. risk of developing an addiction after using prescribed opioids is approximately 5%. 2017, 1 in 9 Ontarians received a prescription opioids. About 94% of all deaths were considered accidental or unintentional overdoses. The largest concentration in 2017, 31 30 year old 3 Ontarians were treated with methadone or suboxone for opioid addiction. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Now, there's no denying the fact that the opioid crisis is here today, right now. Its roots are deep. Its social, medical, and economic considerations are varied and complex. Now, you might be thinking, this isn't really an emergency medicine problem. But in fact, it is. This is as much of an emergency medicine problem as any other. Managing a single opioid sick patient can be difficult enough, but by the time you add the hundreds or thousands your ED might tackle per year, it can all seem overwhelming. To even the most seasoned eMERGE doc, opioid addicted, opioid overdosed, and opioid withdrawing patients can be a challenge. But by the end of this episode, the discomfort you feel managing these patients will at least be partially dispelled thanks to doctors Catherine Dong, Michelle Clayman, and Aaron Orkin. They're all champions of this complex issue whose management is rapidly evolving, and with them, we'll unpack the dizzying world of opioids and help you set in motion the movement that will lead the way to tackle one of the biggest challenges we face in the 21st century. And the beauty of it is that individual treatments don't have to be complicated, You might be surprised to find that just taking that first step in being part of the solution to the opioid epidemic makes these interactions become more meaningful, satisfying, and impactful. So with this in mind, we're going to discuss the most important things to know about opioid misuse management that you can start applying on your next shift, or at least work with your department to help implement in the next few months. Welcome, Dr. Orkin. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Dr. Clayman.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And welcome, Dr. Dong.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: You guys are all new to EM cases, so let's just take quick turns to tell us a little bit about your professional background. Dr. Orkin, you go first.
2: I'm an emergency and public health physician. I work clinically at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital Emergency Department and uh, conduct my research at the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute in Toronto. I also practice family medicine at the Seton House Infirmary, which is a men's shelter in Toronto.
0: Awesome. And Dr. Clayman,
3: I'm also an Emerge Doc. I work at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. I'm also a member of the addiction team at the hospital. I work in the Rapid Access Clinic, which is one of our drop-in clinics, as well as a community addiction clinic with a focus on opioid use disorder.
0: And Dr. Dawn.
1: Uh, So my training is in emergency medicine, but my clinical practice now is all in addiction medicine at our hospital, the Royal Alex in Edmonton. Um, So I've taken the lead there on setting up our response to the opiate deaths we're seeing in our community.
0: Let's jump into the first case. It's around 1 a.m. on your overnight shift, and you hear code blue ED bathroom overhead. You and your team go to the bathroom and discover a man in his 30s, unresponsive, with no pulse. Chest compressions are started immediately... And as he's being transferred into your resus bay, you notice pinpoint pupils, track marks on his neck, and the nurse tells you that she found needles on the bathroom floor. So there's little diagnostic dilemma considering the topic of this podcast and the clinical picture here, although I suppose there could be multiple co-ingestions, some metabolic problem, or an intracranial event causing the cardiac arrest. But assuming we're dealing with an opioid overdose, Dr. Clayman. How would you alter the usual ACLS algorithm in this case?
3: So sadly, this is a case that I have seen a few times at St. Mike's. Really, we're just going to continue with the usual ACLS care, right? Make sure we're getting good chest compressions, oxygenation, IV access as soon as possible. What you do want to add into the algorithm is naloxone. So the antidote to to opiates. So the dosing here is a little bit different than what we're used to. So instead of using very small doses, we're actually using quite bigger doses. So two milligrams IV or IM. And we're going to repeat that every three minutes until we get any response. There have been cases that we've seen doses up to 12 milligrams required to reduce an opiate overdose, especially with the new fentanyls.
0: So basically there you're not changing your ACLS algorithm too much, except that you really need to make naloxone a priority. Actually, the only time I've ever saved someone's life outside the emergency department was when I lived in Cambridge, Mass. And a gentleman in his 20s collapsed on the sidewalk. I happened to be walking by, um, and a whole bunch of people came. We started chest compressions. We did the usual uh, BLS stuff. And it just so happened that they were a block away from a needle exchange program. Someone ran Got some intranasal naloxone, and uh, life was saved. Dr. Orkin, any thoughts on how the ACLS algorithm would be changed uh, with an opioid overdose?
2: What is important to recognize is where some of the emphasis might lie. This is likely a primarily respiratory arrest, so paying additional attention than we normally would to airway management and oxygenation might make sense in this context even with the overwhelming switch to a sort of CAB-type approach to ACLS. And in addition to that, I think emergency physicians should be aware of why they're giving naloxone in this context. We don't actually know that in true cardiac arrest that naloxone reverses that arrest or restores ROSC. But we do know that cardiac arrest can be extremely difficult to diagnose, even amongst advanced practitioners in an in-hospital or pre-hospital setting among people who have an opioid-related cause. And so in the rare event where somebody has uh, a respirate that's undetectable or a pulse that is so thready that it's undetectable, giving naloxone might reverse that uh, and avert cardiac arrest. So uh, we're giving naloxone empirically in this context.
0: Most of the cases of cardiac arrest in opioid overdose happen outside the hospital. Uh, We don't see that many in the emergency department Let's say this patient hadn't lost their pulse. How would you have managed the patient in that case? So, Dr. Dong, let's start with the history and physical. What are you looking for specifically on the history and physical?
1: Well, I found that most patients if they're awake are very forthcoming with information about their drug use. And I think it's really important to ask these questions in a patient friendly manner. Um, Addiction is all about loss of control, and it can be helpful to give some of that control back to the patient by asking permission. I'd like to ask you some questions about your alcohol and drug use. Is that okay with you? Um, It's really important to know your local patterns of use. Patients may talk about uh, drugs and substances in a street uh, context or street language, and if you don't know what they're talking about, it's hard for you to interpret that information. Knowing the local terminology, I think, is really important. If the patient can't give much history, then history from police and bystanders, EMS, is also really important. And if you're taking the clothes off the patient in the eMERGE, you know, preparing for intubation and things like that, just be careful because there may be injection-related equipment on their person. In terms of physical exam, you're looking, you know, these patients need a very detailed physical exam to identify complications of drug use and any other toxidromes that may be present. So really important to check them over head to toe, pupils, skin, abdominal exam, full set of vitals, temperature, looking for signs of trauma. The stigmata of drug use, things like track marks, may or may not be present. And certainly if patients have had IV attempts pre-hospital, can be very hard to determine uh, where some of those marks are coming from. I also think it's really important to have a close connection to your local harm reduction programs. There may be things happening very quickly in the community. There may be a bad batch, for example, that has come into town and you want that information as an eMERGE doc. But if you're seeing lots of things in the eMERGE and you need to feed that information real time back to the community, those connections can be really, really important.
2: Something that's important to know since we're talking about such a sick patient under this circumstance, somebody who is peri-arrest or even arrested. Is that some of the most classical toxidromic findings that uh, we've all been taught in medical school in our early training? Pinpoint pupils, etc. These aren't as sensitive as our teaching would have suggested, and the sickest patients, by and large, especially the ones who die from opioid overdose, by and large have multiple problems going on, be it multiple co-ingestions or other health problems and comorbidities either related to their their drug use or otherwise. And so we should be careful about relying on those sorts of single-drug opioid-related toxidrome-type findings to make our call. Uh, We need to be, especially in the context of this epidemic, really thinking that a huge variety of people with an altered level of consciousness, with a wide variety of findings, might have an opioid-related cause to their condition.
1: Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point because you know we have all these we have our own unconscious biases as well about who we think looks like they may have an opioid use disorder and who who we don't, um, and those can be really difficult to get unpack and underneath look underneath those things as well.
3: Yeah, and we're also seeing a lot of mixed drugs out there. So patients don't necessarily know what they're using. So they could, they might think that they're using an opiate, but it can be an opiate combined with a stimulant, and they might not even know that.
0: When I worked in a inner-city hospital about 10 years ago, I don't think I ever saw a patient just with a pure drug overdose. Most of them had concomitant trauma, concomitant medical problem, concomitant psychiatric problem, So yeah, just so our listeners realize that uh, while we're talking specifically about opioid misuse, it's always a good idea to look for all those other diagnoses as well.
2: Absolutely, and the drugs have changed in the last 10 years and even in the last year. It is harder than ever to get straight cocaine, straight heroin, straight methamphetamine, straight anything on the street. It is all mixed. And so people who use drugs more so than ever can't really say what it is that they use, and their toxidromes are much more combined than ever before, whether they know it or not.
0: All right. It's a mixed bag. Dr. Kleeman, now that we know a bit about what to look for in history and physical, let's talk a bit more about naloxone dosing. You had mentioned that you require very high doses in the cardiac arrest situation, two milligrams every three minutes, sometimes 12 milligrams, especially for the fentanyl analogs. While it might seem pretty straightforward, there are some key nuances to be aware of when it comes to naloxone dosing in the non-cardiac arrest patient. You know, on, on the one hand, we certainly don't want to put an opioid misuser into severe withdrawal with naloxone that we give. And on the other hand, we don't want them to aspirate or even worse, to stop breathing altogether. So how do you suggest we dose naloxone in the non-cardiac arrest patient?
3: Yeah, we definitely don't want our patients to be fully awake and tearing out their lines when we reverse them with naloxone, so we do want to go quite slow. We want to target their respirate and their oxygenation and their end-tidal CO2 to a level that we're comfortable with, but we don't want them fully awake and agitated. So traditional teaching is to give very tiny doses of naloxone, so 0.04 milligrams every few minutes until you get a response. However, with the new drugs that we have out there, we are seeing that we're requiring higher doses. And the Poison c- Control Center in Ontario is actually recommending 0. 0.4 milligrams and above. So dosing 0. 0.4 milligrams and doubling that dose every three minutes.
0: All right, so you want to target an O2 set of more than 90% PCO2 if you've got it.
3: Less than 45.
0: Okay, so target an O2 set of more than 90% a PCO2 of less than 45, and you're giving 0.4 milligrams IV or IM in your first dose. And then if there's no response in three minutes, you go up from there. Correct, yes. Uh, What would your next dose be? One milligram, two milligrams? I'd go to two milligrams. Okay, so 0.4 milligrams is your first dose. Two milligrams is your second dose. And then after that?
3: And after that, keep doubling the dose into a cumulative dose of 12 milligrams.
0: All right, so 0.4 then three minutes later, two, then three minutes later, four, and then you're getting up to about 12 milligrams. What happens when you start getting above 12 milligrams and there's still no response? What do you do from there?
3: I think at that point, it's worthwhile to intubate and ventilate the patient.
0: That's a good pearl. So once you're over 12 milligrams and there's no response and you're still thinking that this could be an opioid overdose, don't give up on that. Uh, Don't think, okay, this isn't an opioid overdose that's when you might have to go for endotracheal intubation. What happens when you do get a response and you've achieved your O2-SAT of more than 90, your PCO2 of less than 45, you haven't overdosed the patient, so they're not ripping out their IVs and going into withdrawal, (laughs) so you've done just the right thing, we know that the opioids will still be around for a lot longer than the naloxone will. So uh, how do you manage the naloxone once you've achieved where you want to be with the overdose?
3: You want to monitor the patient, at least until the naloxone has a chance to wear off. So at about the 60-minute mark, it's going to pretty much fade. So you want to see if they're at risk for a secondary overdose. So after naloxone leaves, if there's still opiates on board, they might go into a situation where they have decreased respirate again. So you want to re-dose them, and then at that point, you might consider a naloxone infusion. And the dosing of that is one-third the amount of naloxone that required for a response.
0: All right, so just to review there, you're targeting an O2-sat of greater than 90%, a PCO2 of less than 45. Your first dose is 0.4 milligrams IV or IM if you don't have an IV yet. If there's no response in three minutes, give two milligrams. And then if there's no response after another three minutes, give four milligrams Keep on doubling up to a total of 12 milligrams. If there's no response after 12 milligrams and you're still entertaining the possibility of an opioid overdose, that's the time to consider intubation and ventilation. And then once you've achieved where you want to be with your boluses, then you can start an infusion at about one-third the amount of naloxone that it took the patient to respond and run that over about an hour.
2: When I picture this, if we're saying to double your doses of naloxone every couple of minutes and we're waiting for 12 milligrams for intubation, I may well have intubated this patient earlier. And that's okay. That's okay if you end up intubating this patient earlier and the naloxone starts to work, they extubate themselves or you extubate them more gently. One need not wait that long to intubate somebody, especially if their sats are very
0: poor. Do
2: I have to wait for
0: you? So, in the end, Your mainstay of treatment is naloxone, and ideally you use it with some finesse and it goes well. Now, we've already alluded to overdosing naloxone leading to severe withdrawal. Uh, Dr. Dong, what else can go wrong with naloxone?
1: So first of all, I'd like to stress that naloxone is a very, very safe medication and that if you have someone who's not breathing and unresponsive, that the risks are really, really minimal in terms of using naloxone. I think the biggest risk is putting patients into withdrawal and then having those patients leave the department, pull out their lines, and you miss that opportunity to actually intervene and offer treatment for their opiate use disorder. There have been reports of pulmonary edema, but it's been really hard to determine whether naloxone is the cause of that or whether it's more related to their drug ingestion and other disease process. Uh, so those are really, really hard to determine cause and effect. And it also has a short, short half-life, so you need to continue to monitor these patients to make sure that their overdose does not reoccur.
0: All right, well, that actually kind of segues nicely into the evolution of the case, talking about withdrawal. A few hours later, the nurse finds you to say that your patient is awake and wanting to leave. How long after an opioid overdose do you recommend that we observe the patient in the ED? I mean, my understanding is that the evidence really isn't very clear on this.
1: There certainly are varying opinions on this, but I think it's reasonable to observe that patient for about two hours after the last dose of naloxone. You need to make sure the naloxone is completely worn off um, and that there's no sign of a recurrent opiate toxicity from a long-acting opiate like methadone, which has a very, very long half-life, up to 60 hours. You also want to uh, make sure that you've assessed that patient for any complications related to their overdose, like pulmonary edema or aspiration. You need to make sure they don't have rhabdo, compartment syndrome, uh, or other complications related to their drug use. There was a great study by Jim Christensen and colleagues that, that was published in 2000 that looked at 573 opiate overdoses, and they said if the patient could mobilize as usual, they had SATs of over 92% on room air, they had a respiratory rate between 20, 10 and 20 a normal temperature, a heart rate of 50 to 100, and GCS of 15, that they could be safely discharged an hour after naloxone. And looking at those factors, they, they only misclassified one patient who had a recurrent overdose uh, in the eMERGE. So I think two hours is very, very reasonable.
0: All right. So in terms of the timing, we're talking about two hours. You want to make sure the O2 sat is more than 92%, that the respiratory rate is somewhere around 10 to 20 that their temperature is okay, that their heart rate is normalized, and that their GCS is 15. Let's say you've reassessed the patient and deemed them safe for discharge. Some of the key elements of discharge instructions, which are all too often glossed over or not even thought about, include things like screening for other drug use, assessing for suicide risk, assessing their stage of change, you know, if, if they're ready to quit or not, offering addiction services, detox, there's naloxone kits, info on safe injection sites, all that great stuff. Dr. Orkin, could you go over for us how to most efficiently and effectively assess and counsel the patient when discharging them?
2: To me, this is about how we frame that moment and how we see it as providers. On the one hand, we're trying to discharge people in emergency medicine, it's really important to uh, have a, a flow in our department. We're trying to maintain that flow. And when we have patients who are ready to go, if I'm anything like my colleagues, I'm, I'm really excited to say, now I can move somebody out of this bed and I want to empty that space. But what we don't realize is that for this patient, this is the moment where healthcare is going to have the biggest possible effect. And what we're trying to maintain is and build on is the idea for this patient that accessing healthcare and having a positive relationship with the healthcare environment can be a life saving thing, and that we're open to whatever level of engagement they're ready to have, whether it's walking out the door right now, or engaging with an addictions clinic, or coming to see us again if they need help in the emergency department. So we need to start with knowing what their risks are, and that has to do with screening, addressing uh, what kind of drugs they're using knowing what kind of other health uh, conditions they have. They've just been resuscitated. You do not have a full history from them yet. Now you actually need to take that history. You need to know about their safety. So uh, we have plenty of patients who this sort of resuscitation is actually a response to suicidality, not a response to an unintentional overdose. And you need to take that moment to identify it because that's going to change your choice of discharge. If it is an unintentional overdose that is uh, related to their substance use disorder or addiction, we need to be assessing their stages of change. We need to know whether they're at a place where they're insightful into their uh, substance use disorder, whether they're at a stage of change where they'd be interested in seeing uh, a different future in the context of their substance use disorder, or whether they're not at that stage of engagement. Uh, there's lots of ways that we can do that brief assessment, but uh, what Dr. Dong's already suggested, which is to prime the patient that we're going to be asking about these things and going to be interested in in what their needs are, I find is by far the most effective. People will expose all of their needs and their stage of change immediately at that moment. So uh, I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about your alcohol and drug use. What do you think about that? and you'll get most of what you need if you stay quiet at that moment. And then all of the rest of it is about accessing services. So uh, indicating to the patient what your options are available in your community, maybe it's their family doctor who provides the best sort of addiction services in the community. Maybe it's a specialized addictions clinic uh, in the community, or maybe there's a service inside your hospital you can uh, refer them to. In some cases, the best choice is to ask the patient whether they'd be willing to stay to see an addictions physician right there in the emergency department in some parts of Canada. So uh, accessing services. That may include detox for patients who are interested in accessing detox, but we need to be really careful about not coaxing people towards detox or um, pushing people towards detox. And the reason for that is that accessing detox, especially at times when people are not really keen on it, not extremely safe in the context of of, uh, entering detox, can actually increase their risk of overdose. So they access detox, they detox for a, a short period of time, they go back to their last dose of opioids, and now it's fatal because they've already withdrawn. So detox is dangerous at the wrong stage. And then finally, we wanna look at harm reduction interventions. So offering people naloxone kits, either through the emergency department, if you have that available, or through other services in the community, and more basic harm reduction interventions, like asking people whether they have access to clean needles and providing them if you're uh, your hospital or you feel comfortable doing it.
0: All right. That, that's a really great pitfall with regards to detox. So I see lots of patients being sent to detox from the emergency department. It seems like sort of a quick, easy thing to do. Ask the patient, do you want to go to detox? They say yes. Uh, you get your crisis nurse to arrange for them to go to detox or they call the number and they go. So that's really interesting to know that this is a little bit different than your alcohol dependent patient. With that risk of going to detox and then as soon as they get out of detox, they take their usual dose of opioid and then overdose and die.
3: However, if they are interested in treatment and were able to start them on agonist therapy for their opioid use disorder in the emergency department or write them a prescription for an opiate agonist when they leave, such as buprenorphine, then going to detox might not be such an unreasonable option, because they will get the supports of case management and counseling when they get there. Great point. I do have another point. So I completely agree with what Dr. Orkin said. You know, I think there's a tendency in the in emergency medicine to write on the chart or to enter an order for DC when awake and ambula, ambulating safely. And I really think that that's a missed opportunity to have the type of discussions that Dr. Orkin was talking about around motivation to change.
0: We're going to talk a lot more about how to have that conversation later on in the podcast. On to case number two. 45-year-old man presents to your ED with the chief complaint of pain everywhere. One of my favorite chief complaints. On further questioning, his pain is primarily in his large joints, bilaterally, and his belly. He's had severe, diffuse, crampy belly pain associated with watery, non-bloody diarrhea that's been worsening since the day prior. On exam, he appears sweaty and ill, and you notice that his nose is running like a faucet. His vitals are normal except for a heart rate of 115. You're just about to treat him as a viral gastro when you notice he appears very anxious and all the hairs on his arms are also sticking up. You examine his pupils, and you find them to be moderately dilated. So, Dr. Clayman, what's going on with this patient? Is this a gastro? Give him a little bit of Vondansetron and send him home?
3: These are classic symptoms of opioid withdrawal. I'd obviously ask the patient if there's any chance that he could be in opiate withdrawal and then ask him about his symptoms that he's feeling. Um, usually, opiate withdrawal presents with anxiety, diaphoresis, lacrimation, rhinorrhea, GI upset, pyloerection or goosebumps. Um, patients are extremely anxious. Um, it's not a life-threatening condition. However, there have been some case reports of Takotsubo cardiomyopathy following a case of opiate withdrawal, as well as risks with patients who have severe coronary artery disease that it might uh, trigger a coronary events. Um, but generally, it is not a life-threatening condition. It's just incredibly uncomfortable. The risk, if we don't treat it, is that patients might leave the hospital against medical advice or before their treatment is complete.
0: Yeah, these are classic symptoms. They kind of, to me, kind of just looks like a bad flu, which I suppose you could, if you're just kind of going quickly through your patients, you might actually miss that they're in opiate withdrawal and they might not be willing to discuss anything to do with opioids um, unless you ask specifically for that. So it turns out that this patient is on Percocet for chronic pain related to an old work accident. He says he ran out of his prescription early and hasn't been able to obtain any more. So Dr. Dong, when would you expect withdrawal symptoms to arise after stopping Percocet as opposed to after stopping methadone or heroin? You know, with alcohol withdrawal, it all depends on how much they drank, when their last drink was, how much they're used to drinking, etc. So when do you expect withdrawal symptoms from opioids?
1: So it really depends on whether the patient is taking a short-acting or a long-acting opiate. With short-acting opiates like Percocet, we'd expect withdrawal to begin within 6 to 12 hours. And for patients that are using fentanyl, um, sometimes that's even earlier. For other long-acting preparations, we're looking at about 24 to 30 hours. And then for methadone, it can be up to 72 hours um, when we start to see withdrawal symptoms. So it's important to know which type of opiate they're using.
3: I just wanted to add that this case is talking about Percocet's prescribed for chronic pain. However, in acute pain, what we know is that even after five days of somebody taking a regular uninterrupted opiate, that they would be at risk for developing withdrawal symptoms. So after cessation of an opiate, after only five days, they'll have physical and psychological withdrawal symptoms.
2: Wow. Brutal. Not just brutal, Five days, that for many emergency physicians is a kind of routine acute pain dosing regimen. We are often the prescribers of five days of opiates for acute pain, fractures, injuries, for people who are still using it for back pain, etc. And so there are many patients whose first experience of withdrawal is after an emergency
0: department prescription of an opioid.
3: We should be warning them of that, that that's a possibility. And I feel like a lot of us probably don't do that as well as we should be.
0: Well, I had no idea that you could develop withdrawal symptoms after such a short course. So that's a bit about the timing of withdrawal. When I started practicing almost a couple of decades ago now, we'd give a patient like this, maybe some NSAIDs and acetaminophen, or if we feel we really had to do something more, we might give a little bit of morphine just to get them out of withdrawal. Um, you know, Maybe we'd throw in some clonidine for their withdrawal symptoms, but things have changed now in 2018. Dr. Klayman, can you outline for our listener how you'd manage opioid withdrawal in 2018?
3: Yeah, for me, I'd like to take a little bit more of a history from this patient because it's unclear to me at this point whether or not this patient is taking his prescribed opiate properly and has just simply run out or whether he actually meets the criteria for an opiate use disorder because that's going to change my potential management. Um, If he has an opiate use disorder, we're going to think about buprenorphine as an agonist therapy to continue once he leaves hospital instead of just treating his acute withdrawal So I think that's very important to first determine. So I'm going to ask him about his opiates that he's taking, if he's taking his prescription as prescribed, if he frequently runs out early, if he takes any other prescribed or illicit opiates, when his last use was, and if he uses any other substances. I'm going to want to know if he has any significant medical problems, any respiratory illnesses, uh, hepatic dysfunction. Or if he's actually on an agonist therapy right now, like buprenorphine or methadone. Then I'll get into the assessment of the withdrawal state. So I'll ask him about his symptoms of withdrawal and measure it using a scale like the clinical opiate withdrawal scale or the COW scale. I can give him symptom management such as NSAIDs, clonidine, Zofran for his nausea. And then if he does meet criteria for opiate use disorder, I would consider medication like buprenorphine, which is an agonist therapy for opiate use disorder.
0: All right. So we'll get into the details of all of these. So there's the COWS, the Clinical Opioid Withdrawal Scale. Let's start with that. So Dr. Dong, can you explain to us how COWS works and how we can use it in the ED to, to assess the degree of withdrawal?
1: Absolutely. So COWS is a validated school that score that we can use to assess the severity of withdrawal. It's very similar to SIWA, which we use for alcohol withdrawal. It has 11 different categories. So things we're looking at on this tool are your pulse rate, whether your patient's sweating or not, their level of restlessness, pupils, bone bone or joint aches, runny nose or tearing, GI symptoms, whether they have a tremor, uh, are they yawning, how anxious or irritable are they, and whether or not they have goose flesh skin. There's a maximum score of 48 points on this tool, which is actually quite easy to score in the emergency department with a minimum amount of training. Uh, mild withdrawal really is between 5 and 12 points, moderate 13 to 24, and severe withdrawal would be over uh, 36 points. When we're looking to initiate buprenorphine, we're looking for patients to be uh, have a score of 12 or more.
0: So we'll have the cows tool uh, on the show notes, and uh, if you don't already use MDCalc, that's an easy place to calculate the cows score, which is worth quickly doing because it will definitely guide your your therapy. So that's kind of the first step. Uh, Next is treating the withdrawal symptoms. Dr. Klayman, you had mentioned Zofran, NSAIDs, Clonidine. I understand there's some people use Gabapentin. Uh, There's a whole long list of things out there that can treat the symptoms. My understanding is that Suboxone will kind of treat all these symptoms anyhow. Practically speaking, What do you use in the emergency department before the Suboxone kicks in, if you are going to use Suboxone, just to treat their symptoms?
3: So if they are dehydrated or have tachycardia, we can give them IV fluids and, of course, replace any electrolyte disorders. We can use Cotorolac or Naproxen as needed for their aches and pains. Acetaminophen would be appropriate as well, as long as there's no liver dysfunction. We're going to use Clonidine, which is an alpha agonist. But we got to be careful because it does drop the blood pressure. So we got to make sure that we're not causing any adverse effects if we are going to use clonidine. And there was a Cochrane review showing that when we compare clonidine to buprenorphine, which we're going to talk about, buprenorphine actually did much better in terms of controlling the withdrawal symptoms in the eMERGE. So I've, I don't tend to use it very much at all anymore.
0: Okay. Uh, Dr. Orkin, do you think clonidine's kind of gone the way of the past or do you think it still has any use in the emergency department? I
2: think it's pretty much gone the way of the past. I can't think of a a patient where if we really take the patient-centered outcomes what their goals are around opioid use. And then we take only the ones who are who are interested in treating their withdrawal or at a stage of change where they want to transition away from their opioid use, where clonidine is going to be a better choice. I, I can't think of a patient who would prefer that.
0: Okay. Well, that simplifies things a lot. The one last medication that I see sometimes used are benzodiazepines, uh, just to help calm patients down and for their agitation. Dr. Klayman, do you think there's still any role for using benzodiazepines in these kind of patients?
3: I don't. Benzodiazepines are quite risky because they could contribute to respiratory depression. If they get benzodiazepines on board and then leave the hospital, relapse, they could be in a situation where they've actually gone into respiratory depression because of the co-ingestions.
0: All right. That, that's actually a great pearl because generally speaking, for almost any toxicologic emergency, benzodiazepines are pretty safe. Um, but this is one of the very few exceptions where you actually want to avoid benzodiazepines.
2: Yes, but be aware of people who are addicted to both opioids and alcohol. Because yes. I've had plenty of patients yes. where the gateway to treating their opioid addiction is Making sure that their alcohol withdrawal is treated, they would be more than willing to uh, to treat their opioid use disorder. But alcohol withdrawal is so debilitating for them that they can't get there. And in that patient, benzos until hospitals will allow us to dose alcohol appropriately, benzos are your only option.
0: All right. So so far we've talked about assessing the degree of withdrawal with cows. Uh, we talked about managing the symptoms. The next step is to assess whether the patient is a candidate for suboxone. Uh, So Dr. Dong, could you explain to us how that works?
1: Sure. So I think the first thing to do is to determine whether your patient potentially meets the criteria for an opiate use disorder. Um, if they do, then suboxone or buprenorphine would be a reasonable treatment option for them. So the things we're looking for, are, you know, does your patient take more uh, opiates than they intend or for longer than they intended? Are they having trouble cutting down Do they spend a lot of their time obtaining uh, opiates, using them or recovering for them? Have they had interference with their homework or school obligations because of using opiates? Relationship problems? uh, Are they giving up important activities because of their substance use? Are they using it recurrently despite multiple uh, adverse consequences? Do they have tolerance to the substance and do they have withdrawal um, when they're not using it? Are they using it every day? And if your patient does meet the majority of these criteria, um, then we need to assess the goals of the patient. Are they interested in receiving this treatment or initiating it in the emergency department? If their patient is there because they've been trying to cut back or they're motivated to cut back on their use, then I think this is just a a fantastic, life-saving opportunity we have in the emergency department to start these patients on treatment. Some patients may not want to reduce their use um, but have high-risk features, and I think it's really important to talk about your concerns. And I also think it's important to have a discussion or think through the risk of not prescribing opiates to patients that are clearly opiate dependent, and they're in your department uh, and in withdrawal, but may not want to start buprenorphine. There is a risk if, if we discharge those patients without access to prescribed opiates, that they will be diverted to the illicit market, which is highly, highly toxic at the moment. So thinking through that is really important for us to do as emergency physicians, Um, And it may be reasonable to prescribe those patients a short-term supply of prescription opiates, but I would do that with a daily dispense. I would fax the prescription. Um, You can also stipulate that certain doses are observed by a pharmacist in the pharmacy, particularly if you're worried about those doses being diverted uh, for injection use. So I think those are all really important things to consider when you're thinking about the next steps for this patient.
0: Importantly there, you really need to assess first whether they have an opioid use disorder and then all the other things in place in terms of follow-up are really important as well. Let's dive a bit deeper into Suboxone itself. For those of you who don't know what Suboxone is, Dr. Klayman, let's, let's talk the basics. What is Suboxone? How does it work?
3: Suboxone is the brand name for a combination product of buprenorphine and naloxone. The active ingredient is the buprenorphine, and it is available as a monoproduct as well, though not very, not commonly used for opiate use disorder. The naloxone part of it is only there to prevent patients from misusing the suboxone. So it has zero bioavailability if it's taken orally. So if taken sublingual as suboxone is supposed to be taken, the naloxone will have no clinical effect If Suboxone is crushed up and injected, the Naloxone will take effect and act as an opiate agonist. So it's in the product to prevent aberrant use.
0: Okay. I mean, as opposed to methadone, right? Which uh, people can start abusing methadone very easily.
3: However, that being said, buprenorphine is misused as well in the community. It can be crushed up and injected as long as people use enough of it to overcome the naloxone effect.
2: It, it's a tamper resistance device. And we know with all tamper resistance formulations that they have a role. But when someone ha- faces an addiction to a drug, that drive will outdo any tamper resistance engineering. Okay.
0: So suffice to say that uh, it's a bit less likely to be abused than methadone and a lot less likely to be abused than, say, heroin.
3: Correct. And it's it's important to educate patients when we are prescribing suboxone because they see the naloxone in it and they know what naloxone is based on all the education right now around take-home naloxone and overdose education. So they might think that it's contraindicated for them or they might not want it because they don't want to go through withdrawals. So they might not understand why the naloxone is in there. So it does take some patient education to have them understand that. So buprenorphine, what's important about it and unique about it is that it is a partial agonist to the mu-opiate receptor. Contrast that with methadone or heroin or morphine, which are full agonists. So it binds the receptor very strongly, even more strong than a full agonist, but it has lower intrinsic activity, so it doesn't have as much activity at the receptor as a full agonist. So it has enough activity at the receptor to prevent withdrawal, and to treat pain, but it doesn't ca- have the same type of side effects as a full agonist and has less risk of respiratory depression. So, is this essentially a much safer medication?
0: We've talked a little bit about why it's better than methadone in terms of its lower addiction potential in itself. We've been using methadone for years and years and years for opioid misuse disorders. In what other ways is uh, Suboxone a better choice than methadone?
3: So in the emergency setting, a lot of us are not comfortable prescribing methadone. Up until recently, we required a special exemption through Health Canada to prescribe methadone. So I don't think methadone has a role at all in the emergency department for opiate withdrawal unless somebody's already prescribed methadone and has missed their dose. To use it for acute withdrawal... It's tricky because methadone is a very potent opioid agonist and it has to be dosed in a way that we go slow, very slowly. So you're not going to be giving large doses of methadone. So the amount that somebody might need in the emergency department might not be safe. Even though we're in a monitored setting, you don't want to give 50 milligrams of methadone right off the bat if the patient does not have a tolerance to methadone. But I just want to emphasize that we're talking about opiate withdrawal, but really what we're talking about is buprenorphine or suboxone initiation in the emergency department. Well, one dose or a couple of doses will help to treat their withdrawal. And if that's all they get, the withdrawal will be much more comfortable than had they not been treated. The idea is them to have some follow-up so they can continue on agonist therapy after they leave the emergency department. So it's not just about treating the withdrawal, it's about treating the opiate use disorder.
2: So for emergency physicians thinking about this, the way to think about this is the same as your new AFib patient who you started on a DOAC, even though you know that you only gave them two weeks of that DOAC and they're going to need long-term management, they're going to need to see a cardiologist or an atrial fibrillation clinic, and they're need, going to need to carry that on. This is a long-term therapy that you're initiating for a chronic health problem. And so the more emergency physicians think about Uh, substance use disorders or addiction in this way so that they're initiating suboxone in this case in order to transition patients to successful long-term management, the the better results we're going to have. That's the kind of problem we're treating.
0: Great analogy. You had mentioned that pretty much the only time you consider giving methadone in the emergency department is for someone already on methadone uh, who missed a dose or ran out. And there's been a change recently in Canada, where we actually don't need a special license to prescribe methadone. Uh, Dr. Orkin, could you just go over for that for us um, how we would, from a practical perspective, prescribe methadone in the emergency department now that we don't need a special license for it anymore?
2: Very carefully. So we would do so only in patients who, I think if we're going to take the safest, most restrictive approach and the way that is progressive in terms of seeing success with these new regulations. So we don't want to see problems around these new regulations. We want them to be successful for this population and for the many prescribers who are uh, using methadone to treat large volumes of patients with opioid use disorders. We want, to be, we want to be using it in a restrictive way in the eMERGE. And for that, it's people who are already on methadone for whom we can confirm their dose, either by engaging with the pharmacy where they pick it up or with the prescriber who gave it to them and who've confirmed a dose for an entirely uh, appropriate reason. The most obvious for me would be somebody who's in custody. So they've been taken into custody. They've missed a dose or, or two. The officers are with them and can most obviously confirm that they've missed those doses. The patient is in withdrawal. You know what their dose should be and you can get it for them from hospital pharmacy. It's entirely appropriate to do so.
1: While Health Canada has lifted the the federal regulations around having a methadone exemption issued by Health Canada, the provinces will still be very individual in how they um, permit physicians to prescribe and initiate uh, particularly methadone. The only exemption or the only exception to that would be Uh, physicians in an acute care setting for uh, for a stable patient on a stable dose of methadone, you can confirm their last dose of methadone, then those physicians can get a temporary exemption to prescribe in that setting. But in terms of initiation in the emergency department, I think that is uh, a separate ballgame.
2: So no initiation, there's no role for emergency physicians to be initiating. This really is stable patient, stable dosing And now they've missed a dose. Once you get into missing multiple doses so that their dosing is no longer stable, emergency physicians are not in a position to prescribe.
3: The other case we might see is somebody who's in the emergency department awaiting investigations who might, their pharmacy might close prior to them being discharged or their carry might be at home. So they're not able to have their methadone that day. We, ha- we really do have to check, though, the last dose, because if the patient has missed three days or more of methadone, then their dose needs to be reduced by 50% or back down to 30 milligrams. So that is very important that we make sure that we can verify that if we are going to be using it in the department.
0: Okay, yeah. Some of these cases can be very tricky. I think oh, yeah. that's what I'm going to pick up my phone and, and text Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
2: There actually is a pearl on this, which is that it is entirely appropriate To push your internal medicine colleagues or your hospitalist when you have patients like this and there's uncertainty around their uh, methadone dosing and they're in a bind say with uh being in custody or otherwise to admit them it is entirely appropriate to admit a patient who is going into withdrawal who's on methadone with uncertain dosing rather than releasing them back into custody with an apology as emergency physicians, we need to be doing that advocacy as well. Discharging a patient in withdrawal who's on an uncertain dose of methadone is a potentially lethal situation.
3: Oh, the one strategy I have seen used in, in centers where you, they might not have access to buprenorphine or methadone is prescribing um, short-acting opiates or long-acting opiates, morphine, short release or long release.
0: Let's get back to suboxone. For the skeptics out there who might think that suboxone isn't that effective or the evidence isn't good enough for it or that it's still an opioid and that it's just going to cause more abuse and more problems, Dr. Dong, what is the evidence for the benefit of suboxone in the treatment of opioid use disorders?
1: I think the evidence is quite clear, actually, that suboxone or buprenorphine is life-saving. We have a great meta-analysis by Sordo uh, and colleagues in BMJ that clearly showed that pooled all-cause mortality rates were lower um, dramatically when patients were engaged in treatment with buprenorphine than when they were out of treatment. Uh, We also have evidence that it decreases activities uh, in crimes, illegal activities and crime rates. um, So that's really important as well. And we have clear evidence from Gail D'Onofrio and colleagues uh, in the emergency department showing that we as emergency physicians can start patients with opioid use disorders on buprenorphine in the eMERGE. So that first dose can be given in the emergency department, but it is also equally effective when we counsel patients and we give them doses and, and talk about how to start buprenorphine at home. Uh, We know that when we do that, we can engage up to 78% of patients in treatment at 30 days and that effect persists for at least two months. So when we can engage patients and start them on treatment, we are dramatically reducing that risk of death in the time period where patients are on treatment. I think it is really important to highlight that relapse is a normal part of this disease process. So all of these patients need close monitoring for relapse, and we need to continually engage patients into treatment with opiate agonist treatment. So if you have someone who comes to the eMERGE that has stopped taking suboxone for whatever reason, they need to be uh, reinitiated and put back on treatment as soon as possible.
0: So we talked about how to handle the patient who misses a methadone dose or three or more methadone doses. Uh, What about for Suboxone? How how does it compare?
3: For Suboxone, they can miss up to five days of their medication before the dose has to change. So if somebody comes in and they've had four days without a dose, you can continue them on the same dose of Suboxone they were on prior.
0: All right. That's an important thing to know uh, because we're going to be seeing more and more patients on, on Suboxone in the emergency department. All right. Well, I'm pretty convinced that Suboxone works relatively well, and uh, we'll have references to all the uh, evidence in the show notes for people to dive into this further. Uh, Dr. Cleman, what are the specific indications for Suboxone, and you know how do you actually give it in the emergency department? L- let's first start with the indications.
3: So first, they have to have an opiate use disorder and be an opiate withdrawal. We also need their buy-in and informed consent, obviously, before we start any medication. They have to understand what the medication is, and they should be followed up in the community or at the hospital after they leave. And we should probably give them an appointment time for when that appointment is, if we're able to make it. In terms of withdrawal, we need to make sure that their withdrawal is moderate to severe. So we want their cow scale to be greater than 12 We can also ask them about the timing of when they last took an opiate. So if they're taking a short-acting opiate, we really should be waiting at least 12 hours since their last ingestion. If they're using a long-acting opiate, we should be waiting at least 24. And if they crush or snort the long-acting, it automatically becomes a short-acting, so it loses that long-acting property. If they're taking methadone, and they want to now start on buprenorphine, it really should be at least 72 hours since their last methadone dose before we start it.
0: So all this Suboxone stuff is pretty new to most of us, and there's really quite a lot of detail here. I can't imagine in the middle of a very busy emergency shift remembering all these details, at least not until Suboxone becomes something that we're using regularly. Is there some kind of protocol that you have or or a kit that you use in, in your emergency department?
3: We do have an order set in our emergency department that was adapted off the Canadian guidelines and the CAMH guidelines for how to use buprenorphine. Um, at the time, there weren't any clear guidelines on how to use it in the emergency department. So a lot of it was based on expert opinion and it's now quite a few years old. But basically what we're doing is assessing for the level of opiate withdrawal using the cow scale, which is easily administered by our nurses, and they are all trained in how to use it. They're comfortable with it because it's very similar to the CWA protocol that we use for alcohol withdrawal.
0: Okay. So maybe we'll have in the show notes a link to an example of an order set for uh, other emergency providers who are who are interested in getting order sets for their emergency departments. I want to get back to how to score the cows and why that's important in prescribing suboxone. Why is it a big no-no to give suboxone to a patient who scores low on the cows? Say let's say they're 6 out of 48 rather than the 12 out of 48 cutoff that we normally use for suboxone.
3: Well there's two scenarios here. Are we talking about somebody whose last opiate use was 3 days ago and is now having fewer withdrawal symptoms than they did before and is therefore scoring low by the time since their last opiate use was, you know, 48 hours ago, or are we talking about somebody whose last use was about 12 hours ago and now they're scoring about a 6? So in the the first scenario will be very safe to give buprenorphine at that time in the emergency department. For this second scenario where somebody last used an opiate 12 hours ago and is only having withdrawal symptoms around scoring a 6 on the cow scale, we have to be careful because we can precipitate a withdrawal. So because opiates that they might be using are full agonists, if we give buprenorphine and there's still the agonist bound to the receptors, we're going to displace that agonist, so the heroin, morphine, whatever it is, the buprenorphine is going to bind preferentially, and then we're going to down-regulate the activity at that receptor. The patient is going to therefore experience withdrawal because their receptors have been down-regulated. So we want to be really careful. If we do precipitate a withdrawal with buprenorphine, it's very difficult to treat, and we also will probably lose patient buy-in to continue buprenorphine at a later time.
0: All right, so then using the cow scale properly is really, really important. Let's say we've got a patient who does have a Cow score of more than 12, let's say it's 15, and you're thinking of starting Suboxone. Since this medication is new to a lot of emergency physicians, what are some of the big sort of contraindications to Suboxone, Uh, Dr. Dong?
1: Well, obviously, allergy to buprenorphine or naloxone would be a contraindication. Patients that have very severe liver dysfunction, we would look at another agent for them. Uh, Patients who are in acute severe respiratory distress or still have a decreased LOC, suboxone would be contraindicated uh, in that moment. Patients that have an active alcohol use disorder or regularly use benzodiazepines, those are more medically complex patients where suboxone may still be indicated um, in terms of balance of risk and harm. But you may want to consult with an addiction specialist before starting the medication in those settings. Pregnancy is not a contraindication to starting suboxone. I just want to point that out.
0: All right. So again, it comes back to uh, building a protocol and an order set to have flags for uh, these contraindications. But it's good to know that your multi-drug misuse disorder patient who also drinks 15 beers a day and may very well have severe liver dysfunction, that's not the kind of patient that you're going to be putting uh, on Suboxone.
2: In those complex patients, so that emergency physicians know how the thinking is being made when they refer somebody like that to an addiction specialist or or otherwise and are not initiating the drug in the eMERGE, those contraindications are not the sort of absolute contraindications that we would think of. This is a, a drug in the context of a harm reduction approach to managing these patients. And there are many patients with polysubstance use disorders, with alcohol use disorder, where on the balance of risks that they're facing around their drug use, that starting them on Suboxone is a huge step forward in their safety. So many of those sickest patients, if they are willing to start on Suboxone and able to maintain Suboxone, will end up being started on it. It just requires much more monitoring, a careful process, very close follow-up. So it's, it's just that the eMERGE isn't the right setting. It's not that we should indicate to these patients that they are not candidates for, for, for treatment or care.
3: So we have to be careful with Suboxone because if somebody is also drinking alcohol or using other sedating agents like benzodiazepines, that risk of respiratory depression is real. There no longer is a ceiling effect and they might not be safe.
0: Great point. Let's get into the dosing of Suboxone. And this is really important uh, because, of course, you don't want to overdose the patients. And if you're not giving enough of it, uh, then really it's kind of a waste of time. So Dr. Dong how do you dose Suboxone?
1: Well, I would start with a, a two mili- a tablet that contains two milligrams of buprenorphine. The tablets come in two strengths. So there's a two milligram buprenorphine plus 0.5 milligrams of naloxone and then an eight milligram buprenorphine tablet with two milligrams of naloxone. So just be cautious of, of how you're writing your order so there's no um, error made. But I would start with a 2-milligram tablet of buprenorphine, sublingual, and I kind of describe this to the patient as a test dose. So this, you may not feel a whole lot better with this first dose, but what I'm wanting to make sure is that I don't put you into precipitated withdrawal. So if the patient is no better, but also no worse, then I'll give another 2-milligram tablet in about 30 minutes, and then another tablet sublingual every two hours to a max of four to six tablets total in that first 24 hours.
0: Okay, so just to review there, you've got 2-milligram formulations and 8-milligram formulations. You're going to start with a test dose of 2-milligram sublingual. Uh, if that works out okay, 30 minutes later, you can give another 2-milligram sublingual, and then every two hours after that, 2 milligrams sublingual. And uh, you're typically looking at 8 to 12 milligrams total. Uh, some patients will require more.
3: Another dosing regimen option is using four milligrams every one to two hours in the emergency department. Because we're in a monitored setting, we can watch these patients and we feel comfortable at St. Mike's using these higher doses so that we're not increasing the length of stay.
0: Okay, so that's what you're going to do in the emergency department. Then what happens the next day and the day after that? How do you? My understanding is that. On day two, they need another 8 or 12 or 16 milligrams. How do you coordinate that?
1: I think it's really important to have a tightly developed referral pathway in your emergency department. So you need to know who in your community or who in your hospital is going to be able to follow up that dosing over the next few days. Typically, we would go up to 16 milligrams for day two and three. And within that three-day period, we'd be wanting to make sure that patient was securely attached uh, to a prescriber in the community.
0: All right. And what about the patients who you're not loading in the emergency department, but they might be candidates for initiating Suboxone at home on their own. I understand that we don't have robust data about this, uh, but Dr. Orkin, is that sort of an option?
2: Absolutely. The best science that we have on ED initiation of Suboxone was this RCT by D'Onofrio and colleagues. And Roughly 40% of the patients in that study received initiation at home. So their protocol allowed both with some assessment of patient risks in those categories. And if we, if we want to achieve the great outcomes where close to 80% of patients who receive that intervention will follow up in an addictions clinic and still be in care in two months, we need to offer that same buffet of services as the trial did. And so that protocol in patients who are forthcoming about their withdrawal whose initial cows score in the emergency department aligns very well with their self-reported amount of withdrawal if they say I'm I'm not in horrible withdrawal and I can wait a little bit a little while longer before I get something that is a strong candidate to say look wait until you feel awful wait until you're experiencing real withdrawal and then start this medication so you're looking for the patients who would be open to that And the advantage of doing that rather than just saying to everybody, stay in the emergency department, is that we will lose some strong candidates for uh, substitution therapy who don't want to feel that uncomfortable in the emergency department, are much more comfortable at home going into withdrawal than staying in the emergency department, and will leave against medical advice while they wait for it. And so it's about choosing our candidates well, but really offering the same service.
3: I don't think we need to be afraid of home initiations as eMERGE physicians. I do this in my outpatient clinic all the time. When patients come in for their first assessment, they're usually not in withdrawal. So it is a very common practice for addiction medicine physicians to prescribe day one dosing as take-home dosing for patients to initiate themselves at home. We just have to give them very clear instructions that if they take it too soon, they will get sick, they will precipitate a withdrawal. So you have to be very clear about that so that they understand. I
0: want to get back to precipitated withdrawal, which we had mentioned a bit earlier in the podcast. Let's say you give a two milligram test dose of Suboxone to a different patient than the patient in our case, maybe a patient that you kind of misjudged their degree of withdrawal. And this time they develop worsening symptoms of withdrawal. You basically precipitated withdrawal with your Suboxone. Uh, how do you manage that situation?
3: It's not a great situation to be in. Once you've given suboxone and precipitated withdrawal, the receptors are going to be bound by the suboxone. So you can try giving a second dose of suboxone, although usually in my, it doesn't help with the symptoms. You've now down-regulated the action of the receptors. If you give opiates full opioid agonists, they are not going to work either because now the... Receptors are bound by Suboxone. So really what we're left with is a symptom management using medications like we used to use for opiate withdrawal, like clonidine NSAIDs on Dantotron. All
0: right. So it just drives the point that the assessment, the initial assessment and calculating an accurate cow score really is important.
2: I think that it's a horrible situation to be in, especially for the patient, somewhat for the provider. Emergency physicians should know not to go down the path of thinking that they can escalate the dose of conventional opioids and overcome this somehow. People get into giving hundreds of micrograms of fentanyl, and it's going to have no effect, and it has had no effect, or it'll have a minimal effect, and just don't get caught giving huge doses of opioids.
3: At some point, this eboxone will dissociate, though, and you'll have all this opiates floating around where you get into a situation of opioid overdose. After the iatrogenic, don't give take opioids.
0: Oh boy, you, you gotta. <laughs> just don't chase your tail. Yeah, yeah. Let's get back to the case. Luckily, with our patient, after 16 milligrams of Suboxone, they're feeling better and they have no withdrawal symptoms. They're ready to be discharged, assuming that there's no other emergency issues that need to be addressed. So, Dr. Clayman, What kind of discharge instructions do you recommend for our patient?
3: First, we have to make sure that they can get good follow-up after they leave the emergency department. We should know about our local resources. Is there somewhere where we can send them to a drop-in clinic that treats addiction use disorders? Or can we actually make them an appointment for when they can come back for that full assessment? That is the most important piece of all this, is that we do arrange for some type of follow-up until they can get to that follow-up, we should be writing them a prescription to continue the Suboxone when they leave. And that prescription should be quite detailed. So Dr. Dong mentioned 16 milligrams on day two and three, and that's very reasonable, and that's what I do. But what I write is what specific pharmacy they should pick it up at. I write the dose in numbers and words, and I write that it should be daily observed dosing by the pharmacist.
0: So you've got your eight milligram formulations. That would be two sublingual tabs of suboxone that are eight milligrams each for a total of 16 milligrams on day two and three. And then what about after that?
3: After that, hopefully we can get them assessed in clinic by a specialist who can assess their level of withdrawal at that point and see if the dose needs to be escalated.
0: The opioid epidemic uh, obviously isn't only in places where there's addiction clinics next door. We've got thousands of opioid use disorder patients across the country and rural areas, what do you suggest in terms of follow-up for patients uh, who don't have access to addiction clinics?
3: That's a great question. Because Suboxone is such an easily-to-prescribe medication with no license, I think this really does fall to family physicians to learn how to prescribe Suboxone in their office and become comfortable with how to dose it appropriately for patients.
0: All right, so we've talked about the importance of follow-up and the prescription. What else in terms of the discharge instructions?
3: We're going to talk about harm reduction because remember, they've now been treated with an agonist therapy. If they were to stop that agonist therapy, and then relapse to opiates, they would be at risk for overdose and subsequent death. So I always talk to patients about their loss of tolerance, should they relapse. We always talk about harm reduction. So do they have a naloxone kit if they don't have one? Do they know where to get one? Do they need a refill? We discuss uh, clean needles. So do they have access to clean needles? Do they need some? Can I give them some today? And then any other outstanding medical problems that they may have as a result, directly a result of their substance use or other untreated medical issues that they may not have been addressed.
0: All right. The one thing we didn't talk about was the pregnant patient. Uh, Dr. Dong, you had mentioned before that Suboxone is safe in pregnancy. What other specific considerations are there in the pregnant patient?
1: Well, opiate withdrawal is really an emergency for the patient and also for the fetus because this can precipitate early labor buprenorphine and, and, and suboxone is safe in pregnancy. So we would never put someone into withdrawal while they were pregnant just to start suboxone. But if they're in withdrawal in, in front of you in the emergency department, suboxone is safe to initiate in the emerge.
0: On to case number three. You're finishing a very busy shift in the ambulatory section of your emergency department And your last patient is a 34-year-old female who broke her arm after falling off her bicycle on the way home from work. You place a splint, and as you're suggesting that she can take ibuprofen and acetaminophen for any pain she has, she mentions that she's on suboxone for opioid addiction. So how do you handle this situation?
2: So the way you've set it up, actually sets us up for a lot of success. We're, we're in a good place here because we have already planned to manage this without opioids. And there's plenty of evidence to show us that in the majority of cases with this kind of an injury, that NSAIDs and acetaminophen will be adequate and effective for our patient to see pain control, even in that most acute period of the first couple of days after uh, an injury like this. The challenge comes in the patient's who were either given opioids in the emergency department uh, for their acute pain management or who are not seeing adequate pain control with NSAIDs and acetaminophen and are needing rescue dosing of opioids to manage their pain when they're on buprenorphine. And that's where the real conversation begins. For those patients, the first and most important pearl, and then we can have a discussion around various approaches, and there is not strong evidence for this, The, the key pearl is don't stop their buprenorphine. This patient is now a patient with a substance use disorder who has a history of opioid use, who has found a successful substitution therapy, is having new pain, and to stop or change their substitution therapy places them at extraordinary risk of relapse, overdose, and death. And so we need to start a plan with the principle that we're going to keep them on their substitution therapy.
3: That goes for perioperative operative patients as well. The thinking used to be, and I've seen patients been advised to stop their buprenorphine prior to surgery, and it puts them at very high risk for relapse.
0: Dr. Dong?
1: I think you know some of the approaches we can use to manage this patient, if they're stable on their buprenorphine, one thing you can consider is splitting their buprenorphine into... Uh, BID or TID dosing so you get more effect uh, in terms of pain management from their existing medication plus adding maximal non-opiate medications. I agree that reducing the dose of their buprenorphine so you can get more full agonist uh, opiate effect from a different agent is really a last resort option. I think it's really important to link these patients back to their prescriber as well to make them aware that they have an acute pain issue and make sure they have very close follow-up for monitoring relapse and adjustment of their pain medications as required in the community.
2: If you take this patient when they first arrive, say they've arrived with what is going to turn out to be a Colley's fracture and they've got a a dinner fork deformity of their forearm and they have really acute pain right there and they tell you the moment they arrive, look, I I use Suboxone. You need to be prepared to manage their pain through uh, non-opioid modalities. and Initially, the exact same stuff that you're going to be prescribing on discharge, uh, NSAIDs and acetaminophen is a very important part of that. But we know that roughly five to eight out of every 10 people with really severe pain like that are going to need a, a rescue dose or two. And for these patients, the classic rescue medication for, for analgesia, which is morphine or hydromorphone in our emergency department is not going to take effect. So these are the patients who are thinking about other uh, analgesic approaches, be they regional anesthesia, ketamine is going to be really key and really an important part of our emerge arsenal.
3: Yeah, just to add to that, these patients do have a very low tolerance to pain based on the changes at the receptor from being on a chronic opiate therapy and a very high tolerance to opiates. Um, Because the buprenorphine is bound very strongly to the receptors, it's going to be very hard to overcome that with traditional opiates.
0: Great discussion. So one way of looking at it is suboxone is so good that it makes it near impossible to effectively treat pain with opioids in a patient who's taking suboxone
2: right so good at, at binding those receptors
0: i'd like to direct listeners uh to our episode on opiate misuse that we did with dr david Yerlink and uh ruben strayer that goes through all the alternatives to um opioids for controlling pain in the emergency department <laughs> On to case number four. A 20-year-old man presents after a foosh off his dirt bike after drinking alcohol and doing speedballs, cocaine and heroin mixed. He was with his buddies, and he has only mild symptoms of intoxication when he comes into your emergency department. So Dr. Dong, it's easy enough to diagnose a coles fracture, let an intoxicated patient sober up, and then kick them out of your ED. But we all know that this isn't necessarily the best approach. If there's any hope in helping this patient become healthier and minimizing return visits, you got to do more. So besides your usual medical treatment for this patient, how do you go about specifically addressing their drug use? I understand that even simply mentioning their drug use may help prevent future problematic use.
1: So I think doing something like screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment or Espert is a huge opportunity and, and we can use some of that downtown that downtime that currently exists in the eMERGE to do this. So Espert really does describes screening. Um, delivering a brief intervention, and then referring patients at risk so that they can access care in the community. This has been more robustly studied in the emerge setting around alcohol use um, and also for tobacco, but we are seeing emerging evidence that this can be very effective in opiate use disorders as well. In terms of screening tools, I think the there's no clear you know, winner in terms of screening tools. The CAGE questionnaire, I'm sure we all learned, that is a tool that you can use. There's also the NIDA quick screen, which asks patients in the past year, for men, how many days, how often have you had five or more drinks in a day? And for women, how how often have you had four or more drinks in a day? How often have you used tobacco products in the last year? Have you used prescription drugs for non-medical reasons or illegal drugs in the last year? And just with a few quick questions, you can really get a good sense of whether your patient has any sort of high-risk substance use.
0: All right. I love that. So ESPERT stands for Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment. So that's a little bit about the screening. Uh, let's say you identify a positive screen on ESPERT. What do you do next in terms of the brief interventions?
1: So what's been described most commonly in the eMERGE literature is something called the brief negotiated interview. So the first step to this is just building rapport with your patient, asking permission to talk about some of these things. So you want to raise the subject and talk about opiate use in a patient-centered manner. Um, You want to give your feedback, if the patient's agreeable to listening to it, about what you think their risk is and what what problems you've identified. And often you can link this to the reason that they're in the emergency department. And really look at helping them identify their readiness to change. Sometimes you can use what's called a readiness ruler to really get a good sense of where patients are at in that change continuum. And then you want to have a conversation with patients about what do they think the next steps are? What sort of things do they want to change in their life? And then you can provide referral to community resources And when we look back at that D'Onofrio paper, we saw that the patients that weren't started on buprenorphine that were given referral or given this brief negotiated interview, actually 37 to 45% of them actually followed up and were in treatment at 30 days. So sometimes building rapport and giving advice and helping patients reflect on their experience is also a very, very important way of engaging patients into treatment.
0: Wow, those are pretty impressive numbers, just from having a you know a short conversation with patients. What I love about ESPERT and motivational interviewing is that you can apply the same principles of motivational interviewing to so many similar situations in the ED. You know, whether that's a patient who's non-compliant with their medications, or they want to leave AMA when you know what's best for them is to stay. You had touched on a few of these principles already, but could you just go through for us, sort of, some of the key principles of motivational interviewing?
1: So I think the first thing is to really be empathetic. Um, And you want the patient to know that you're on their side and you're very much interested in helping them be as healthy as they can be. You want to be non-confrontational, non-judgmental. You want to use open-ended questions so that you can understand the patient's perspective. You want to help your patient develop discrepancy between what their current behavior is and what their long-term goals are. Um, And then you can amplify that into actually setting treatment goals with the patient. You don't want to argue with the patient. You don't want to tell them what to do. And if the patient is really resistant, then you just roll with it. Um, And you use that resistance to build motivation. You help them reframe uh, things that they've been talking about. You also want to support their self-efficacy. You want to help them build on their past successes and apply some of the things that they've been successful in in the past to their current situation and really help them see a different path forward from that from that eMERGE visit. All right.
0: Can you give me some examples of how you'd, for example, help them plan for, for goals? Like, What do you actually tell the patient?
1: Often I'll just ask patients, where do you want to go from here? You're in the emergency department, you've had this overdose, where do you want things to go um, from here? And I'll listen, quite honestly, to what they have to say about what their priorities are. For some patients, it's around their alcohol and drug use. For other patients, they're more focused on housing or other more immediate needs. But honestly, to me, it doesn't matter which one of those doors the patient opens because I know if I can help them get off the street and get into housing, their substance use will go down. I know that if we can take that moment to initiate someone on buprenorphine, their substance use will go down, and then the rest will follow. So I think it's really working with your patient to figure out what are their key priorities, and that's that's where you start. The rest will follow.
2: One of the most beautiful adages of harm reduction is any positive change. And so asking a patient who is really both had a, a horrible health experience, and oftentimes for this population, really negative experiences with healthcare providers as well. So they've, they've come pretty close to dying today if they had an overdose, and their experiences around the people who uh, have responded to those acute cases haven't been so great in the past. Asking them what might make tomorrow better than today, and if they woke up tomorrow and uh, that day was a little bit better than today, how would they know? I have found extremely revealing for those patients. And most of the time, those incremental changes are things that can be achieved, and they can be offered to those patients. So, asking what what any positive change would look like has been extremely helpful for me.
0: All right, Doctor Klemm, any any tips on opioid misuse phraseology, as uh, as Ruben Strayer puts it?
3: I don't use the word addict or junkie. Right, these are terms that we used to hear maybe way back when that really we should never be mentioning in the emergency department, right? Instead of saying somebody is, uh, an addict, we can say they are addicted to a substance. We're not identifying that, you know, their addiction is not them as a person. It is a disease that they happen to have. So we really want to avoid that term. We don't want to use the terms clean or using because, again, those have a lot of negative connotations associated with them. Associated with them, So I think we really need to try and break down the stigma and lead as examples.
2: Stigma is deadly. Uh, and I don't think I, I don't think we we fully internalize this. This is not a matter of um, political correctness these these words. Uh, what we see in the opioid ep- epidemic and what we what I think we all can can understand as emergency physicians is that opioid overdose, even as the most extreme complication of uh, an opioid use disorder, is itself not a deadly thing. I have never had somebody who, had vital signs uh, while they had an opioid overdose in my care who went on to die. I've seen plenty of deaths. But in that sense, it's the context that's deadly. People are using opioids alone in alleyways or in apartments or in very isolated settings. They are extremely marginalized. And it's that context that makes opioid use deadly. And stigma is what perpetuates that context. It's what distances people from care, from safety, from family, from uh, social structures. The UN ran a study of 18 Western countries on major social constructs or issues that are socially discrediting. That's the definition of stigma, a a factor about a person that is socially discrediting and found that across Western civilization, illicit drug use is by far the most stigmatizing thing in our civilization across Western countries, 18 Western countries. And Canada is one of the worst that we stigmatize drug use among the worst among Western countries, and that's something that we need to address because it is contributing to these deaths. Incidentally, we also, uh, in Canada, stigmatize homelessness more than almost any other country, and that interacts with this, uh, with this epidemic in the most lethal of ways. People who don't have a home and use drugs are seen in a, in a deeply oppressive way in Canada, and that contributes to their death as much as their addiction.
3: Yeah. You know, I had a patient the other day say to me after one of these conversations around motivation to change about their substance use, treated some other medical issues that they'd come in with that had been not addressed in previous eMERGE visits. As she was leaving the department, she looked at me and she said, thank you for treating me as a person. And I was taken aback. I'm like, wow, how are you treated the last three times you're in the department this week that you have to tell me thank you for treating me as a person?